Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now, my dear friends, this uh, evening's sermon uh, is the text set for Palm Sunday for Evensong, Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Now, this is the only parable in Mark's gospel of Jesus' teaching ministry at the temple after his triumphal entry of Jerusalem. Now, we know that there were more than this particular teaching because in verse 1 of our text, Mark writes how Jesus spoke to those gathered in the temple court in parables, the plural. But Mark singles out this parable as the most significant. So it would be good for us, I think, to do a closer reading of this text this evening, because in it, Mark underlines a direct appeal to the listener, to turn to Christ as their Savior and their Lord, but also the consequence that comes in rejecting the appeal made by the Lord Jesus. Now we can see this for ourselves. We consider how this parable is set in the midst of a direct challenge to Jesus' authority, his ability to teach by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. We see this in Mark chapter 11, just prior to our parable. Now we saw, as we studied Luke a few years back, how what began in shock in his claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God, rises exponentially in opposition that culminates in this plot to arrest him and see him executed for blasphemy. But these religious leaders had to wait until he remained within their jurisdiction in the city of Jerusalem for a longer period of time for their plot to take effect, a time of a longer religious observance like the Passover. It was then that they would have the authority and the means to move against him. The time has come. So Mark describes in chapter 11 how the Lord Jesus has entered Jerusalem in triumph. And in a way, he's setting up what we find in our parable. I say this because as the people lay down their cloaks and branches, shouting out, they're shouting verses from the psalm our Savior quotes at the end of his parable, Psalm 118. There you hear of the entry of the righteous one, shouts of praise from the crowd, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Every Jew in Judea, every religious leader would know the content of Psalm 118 and what this means. The righteous one, the Messiah, has come. 
Next, as Mark prefaces his uh, parable, he records the cursing of the fig tree. It bookends the next event that he records, the cleansing of the temple, when Jesus drives out the money changers and the merchants. Mark tells us that the chief priests heard this and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd were astonished at his teaching, Mark chapter 11, verse 18. Now we come to the result of the curse of the fig tree. Peter calls out that it's now withered. What's going on here? Well, Jesus calls to attention how the fig tree from a distance appeared verdant, lush, a healthy tree. But on closer inspection, there was a lack of fruit. The tree turns out to be deceptive for its green and foliage, but when it's inspected, there isn't even the hint of the beginning of a fig uh, fruit. It's a tree with signs that it should have this, but it lacks it. The Lord Jesus points to the appearance and the lack in the same way that he always points out the appearance and the lack of the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the elders. We find this all through his ministry. They have the appearance of holiness, the appearance of spirituality, but they're dead upon closer inspection. So we see this ever-rising confrontation, these events that challenge the elite religious leaders, the triumphal entry itself, the claim to be the Messiah, the cleansing of the temple, the authority that comes for the Messiah, and the indictment of them in the sign of the barren fig tree. And so the confrontation. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders seek a charge to arrest him. Each leadership faction has a go only to fail, which leads them to plan a nighttime arrest away from the crowd, a hurried trial and execution in the morning. It's in the midst of all this that Jesus tells this parable. It's if everything stops and he begins this teaching. So let's examine the content of the parable, its judgment and its warning. First, the parable itself. The first thing we need to know is how this practice of tenant farming was very well known throughout the Roman world. You see, because the Roman economy was predominantly agricultural, and so the landowner, the agricultural laborer, the tenant farmer were all dependent upon one another. And Roman property law was complex when it came to the issue of tenancy with special provisions. The landowner was an absentee, usually living in the city or in a town, and he would enter into contract with tenants to lease his land. The rent owed was a percentage of the profit from the sale of the main crop at the annual harvest. And this is critical, you see. Because using a vineyard as an example triggers a series of Roman laws concerning tenancy. They would have noticed this in the crowd. They would have noticed that 
And one other thing. Let's begin with that first one, this special provision of Roman law. You see, the crop of a vineyard was not a usual annual crop. It involves, rather, a long-term commitment, development of a perennial crop with significant investment. It requires irrigation. It requires manure because vines are very hungry plants. You have to build a wall around it to protect it from critters that may damage the vines or the fruit. It requires an adjoining settlement and plantation as a source for canes to support the vines, farmyard animals to provide the manure, a spring to channel water for irrigation. It normally took five years for vines to become productive and required constant irrigation, a skilled workforce across several agricultural disciplines. But here, when the vintage year actually arrives, this group of tenants conspires together. They refuse to fulfill the contract. And after the successive failure of the owner's representatives, he sends his own son and heir. The tenants plot to kill him so that the inheritance becomes theirs. In other words, if there is no heir and the landowner dies, Roman law states that you can make a claim of the vineyard in terms of, let's call them, squatter's rights, and sue for ownership. There's a sense of lawlessness in such piracy that was exceptional and would have led to a sharp intake of breath among those listening in the temple. Now, the second reason that Jesus chose the vineyard is in verse 12b, when the chief priests, scribes, and elders know that he told the parable against them. He chose it because this use of vineyard, as we saw in our Old Testament reading, is Israel's story. And the religious leaders knew their Old Testament scriptures. They knew how the prophet Isaiah had used this image of the vineyard to sum up Israel's disobedience. They also knew how the prophet described the judgment which follows. The Lord will remove its protecting wall and it will be trampled, devoured by wild animals and beasts. It will become a wasteland. Rain will stop. It will be desolate, a dry desert. And we find out that it's there that Isaiah does indeed make the reference that the vineyard is the house of Israel. Now, the Lord Jesus knows there is a conspiracy afoot and murders in the air against him. So he moves quickly to another Old Testament prophet. The landowners, successive representatives, are prophets sent by God. Jeremiah gives evidence of this in Jeremiah chapter 7. This is what he wrote. For the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me, or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. We know the Lord Jesus himself made the same lament 
in Luke chapter 13. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. So Jesus takes the witness of the Old Testament scriptures and brings it to a head in one final edition, the edition of the Son, the Beloved Son. Now this Son represents not only the Father's legal claim, but also his compassion. Everything in verses 6 to 7 of the parable underlines this. The Son differs from the rest in several important respects. There are many representatives, but he is unique. There are forerunners, but he is the last and final word from the Father. And as the beloved son, Jesus links in Abraham's love for Isaac in his sacrifice, Jacob's love for Joseph in the son who was dead and now made alive again. All through we can see in the Old Testament God's steadfast covenant love for Israel, calling Israel my beloved son. We know from the Gospels that at his baptism, Jesus is named from heaven by the Heavenly Father as my beloved son. Listen to him. So the reference of the beloved son connects the witness of the scriptures to its fulfillment in Jesus, the beloved son the Messiah of Israel and Savior of the world. But the judgment is in verse 9b. The owner will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, Matthew's account of the parable adds another dimension. He writes, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Now remember the fig tree. Appearance, but no fruit. Where is this going? Well, the judgment is the destruction of the elite chief priests and scribes and elders, the shepherds of Israel, that Ezekiel would call them. But the others who will receive the vineyard, who are they? Well, they are the children of God, the children of Abraham, by faith, the tax collector, the sinner, the Gentiles all around the world. Yes, you and me as believers. Now, we find this best expressed in the New Testament in the Apostle Peter's first letter. And I want to spend just a moment here on this. It's so important. You see, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-8, through 8, he returns to Jesus' quote of Psalm 118 and links it to Isaiah in chapter 8 of Isaiah and chapter 28. There, Isaiah describes how our Heavenly Father both promises to judge those who have made a covenant with death, while also in the midst of this judgment, saving and preserving his covenant people. Here's what Peter writes. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, this is Isaiah 28, 
Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, Psalm 118, and our parable in Mark 12, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And, and now back to Isaiah, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. And notice what Peter says next, as they were destined to do. Have you noticed how all those who have come to Christ in faith are attributed the same responsibilities in terms of a chosen priesthood as was once given to Israel. Those descriptions that were once only applied to Israel are now gathered up into a spiritual Israel who receive him by faith. In the same way, the Apostle Paul sets out in Romans 9 to 11 the same thing, how the rejection of the Lord Jesus by Israel has grafted in the Gentiles. And the Apostle John writes in chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, these famous words, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So in Mark's Gospel, you see, this parable of the wicked tenants becomes the hinge point, the turning point between what has preceded in the Old Testament witness and what will follow in its fullness in Christ that will culminate at the end of the age. And that's how we come to the warning of Psalm 118. It's in the conclusion of the parable. It's in verses Psalm 118 that the Lord Jesus quotes this. Have you not read this scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Now we know already that these leaders certainly know this psalm. So this question is a rhetorical one. Of course they know it. Of course they've read it. But he wants to give this point of warning. Why did he do this? Because God is continually appealing, not wishing any to perish, but that all would be saved. It is that point that drives us to share the gospel with all those around us. Psalm 118 is the most directly quoted psalm in the New Testament. It meant that much to the early church and to the apostles. The other would be Psalm 110. But of the two, Psalm 118 is quoted the most fully. So we have to gather it all together to understand the warning Jesus gives. First, there's a play on words in the original Hebrew. The nouns stone and sun sound and are spelled similarly. The Lord Jesus is making a claim that he is divine, the Son of God, the cornerstone. And what is about to unfold in his passion, death, and resurrection is the work of God. This is the Lord's doing, 
and it is marvelous in our eyes. But notice the reaction at the end of the parable. They don't object to this. They don't. Have you noticed? They don't object to the fact that he is claiming to be God incarnate, but they reject him. They turn away. He's the stone rejected by Israel's representative leaders. But he is raised to the highest honor by the Father. He is denied by his people. Crucify him! Crucify him! But approved of God and preserved even in death, rising from the dead. He descended lower than any innocent person ever did. But he's already arisen to be the firstborn of all creation. You see, my dear friends, this is the important point. The leaders reject the Lord Jesus, not because they did not understand him, but because they did understand him all too well. Is the Lord Jesus the only Savior? Yes, he is. What does the psalm say next? It says, this day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. The day here is the day of salvation, in which the Lord Jesus comes to us as our Savior, the Son of God, the Son of David. It is a day of joy and gladness to all who believe. Save now, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success is how Psalm 118 draws to a close as the triumphal entry words are heard again. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The stone rejected becomes the cornerstone and the psalm concludes in praise and glory to God. This is the day that the Lord has made, the day of salvation. But there is also a day set to judge the world. That's exactly what the Apostle Peter did in Acts chapter 4 when he stood before the Sanhedrin after healing the man who had been lame from birth in the temple court. Imagine this, my dear friends. Sitting in those seats were the same representatives who had condemned the Lord Jesus a few months earlier. He quotes the same psalm in the same way. The Lord Jesus is now vindicated as the Son of God, by his resurrection from the dead. Acts chapter 4, verse 11. Peter says this, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's an important principle here, a vital one, my dear friends. The consequence between heaven and hell is to hear the gospel repeatedly and repeatedly refuse to respond in faith. When God's appeal is heard to the scriptures, preached, read, and studied, it either it softens our hearts by the power of the Spirit as you receive him, or it hardens your hearts as you reject him. Consider their example of these leaders. It's exactly what happens to them. This is the judgment against those who knew the scriptures but said no to God's anointed.
Now, I want to ask this question to anyone who may have heard repeatedly the message of the gospel, who understands who Jesus is and why he came, but has said no or not yet. It's simply this. Do you realize that there is a final, comprehensive reality in Jesus' parable? The vineyard now becomes the world. Israel, spiritual Israel, has spread all over the world. And this world will soon pass away to be renewed and restored as all creation groans waiting for its day of salvation. All that we enjoy in the beauty of the earth of creation will be taken away and given to another people of many tongues, tribes, and nations who sing, Worthy is the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now is the day of salvation. Where will you be? With those who say no, or with those who sing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.